so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. <laughs> um, I'm sat with Lynn Enright, and you are the author of Vagina, a Reeducation. Mm-hmm. Tell me, um, first of all, tell me about you. So what are you doing at the moment work-wise, and where are you? So I'm a journalist, and um, I am currently acting digital director at Grazia. So looking after the Grazia website and working with the wider team and and, uh, figuring out a digital strategy and all of that. Um, I've always been interested in journalism, probably... Yeah, journalism for women, let's say. Um, you know, I've worked in fashion journalism to begin with, but then I moved into, I suppose, features. And I was just very interested in telling women's stories and and, and doing work that interested women, as varied as that is. So yeah. that's kind of taken in so much, you know, because really that's everything almost, you yeah. know. Um, yeah, so I, I was working... Uh, at a website called The Pool, which no longer exists, uh, when I started working on the book, Vagina Reeducation. And while I was working there, I started doing a lot, editing and commissioning pieces and writing some pieces about women's health, um, women's sexuality. and, And then also, I suppose, during that time, the Repeal the Eighth campaign happened in Ireland so that was the campaign for abortion um legal abortion in Ireland and then Me Too happened um so that's kind of where the book came out of yeah so it's a really kind of a quite loud prominent time for women really or out of necessity yeah 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 and while I was working there I, I noticed that pieces about women's health and women's bodies did seem to resonate and then so did pieces about movements like repeal Mm. or me too and I kind of got to think how those two things were connected like the sort of taboos and silences that existed around literally the biology of women's bodies and how that was connected with these much bigger movements and moments like me too and repeal and I suppose that's what I wanted to explore in the book yeah um, so before before this, you hadn't really worked in women's health. Sorry, I'm just going to say it. There's a banging and it's just come on <laughs> and we're both looking around the room like, what the hell's going on? Um, so before these, before, especially I guess before the Me Too movement, but do you think before this time that women's health was being written about and spoken about so much as it is now? Um, I think definitely we've seen uh, a sort of, uh, we've just come off a year that it's been really, widely spoken about um you know red magazine did this lovely you know they rounded up the years talking points for 2019 and they included my book and they asked me to you know write a little piece about why 2019 was the year of the vagina so you know I think there was definitely um a lot of talk about vaginas and women's bodies and women's health there was my book there was Emma Barnett's book um there was uh, Maisie Hill's book, mm. uh, Nimco Ali's book. Mm. So there were a lot of books about women's bodies. But I don't think that we should think that, you know, we definitely weren't the first people to talk about this. Yeah. And I think that, you know, in in sort of every iteration of feminism, there has been, there have been women who have been talking about women's bodies, have been talking about sex and sexual assault and pleasure and pregnancy and 
post-pregnancy and I suppose you just kind of want to um, recognize that we've kind of had these moments before, you know. I think especially in the early 80s, there was definitely a sense that feminism involved educating women about their bodies and lots of women I've spoken to who are in their kind of 60s remember you know sort of sitting around and and looking at their vulvas with other women and then that kind of disappeared and gets forgotten about and I think we've seen that again and again do you have any idea why historically that it it gets pushed down I'm like we haven't discussed this probably but I'm just interested yeah I mean I think it's just it sort of doesn't reach a critical mass I think um you know, because even as we say, yes, it's been this brilliant year for women talking about their bodies. Mm. Simultaneously, there's been, you know, loads of porn that shows vulvas that have been operated on and so that they look a certain way. Um, you know, there's, you know, there's, it, it, it's it's kind of, it's happening, but I don't know if it's happening everywhere. And I don't yeah. know if the, the culture, like, it happens in one place, but it doesn't happen in a widespread enough way to yeah. change the culture completely. Yeah. And I suppose that's what we need to do. Um, but I do think it's interesting, you know, I watched, um, I'm not sure if you've seen the Gwyneth Paltrow. Yeah, I was going to yeah. bring it up. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that's pretty mainstream, you know, a big Netflix show with a Hollywood A-lister yeah. and they're showing vulvas and, and a woman and um, orgasming yeah and a woman orgasming yeah shown, yeah and i just thought that was you've kind of never really seen a woman orgasm like that on screen because it's not like theatrical theatrical and, yeah it's not designed to titillate and interestingly so, there wasn't a man involved yeah so it was very much it felt um it's very much from a female point of view yeah like the female gaze yeah there was no maleness around yeah. that yeah. And so I think if you, you know, having that on a Netflix show is is pretty radical and also pretty mainstream because of its reach. So, yeah. you know, I think it is just about reaching as many people as yeah. we possibly can. Yeah. My one, my, my only thing about that show is that I think because Gwyneth Paltrow is who she is, she's a celebrity mm-hmm. and she's female and she's, she started Goop in 2008. Mm-hmm. So she's been doing this for a while that she's an easy target, which I think is a real shame. You mean for um, for criticism? For criticism, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, and I think it's complicated because I think that Goop has been involved in spreading misinformation. Yeah. You know, I think that that JDEG thing. So that you know the yeah. the JDEG that they claimed. You know, they claimed it could do stuff that it couldn't do, and some people in like to use JDEGs or think that JDEGs are useful, but it was incorrect of Goop to say that it could do these certain things. I think in the way that they labelled yeah, it, they, exactly. it was like this, it, wasn't, it isn't evidence-based yeah. information. Yeah. 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 And so I think it, in that respect, you know, they've, they've done women a disservice, but in a way they're filling a gap, I yeah. think, because there's like, there's nowhere else that people have, or, you know, there are, Maybe there are some places, but there aren't that many places where women can feel that there are, you know, mainstream organizations that take their bodies really seriously. And I think that are interested in their bodies as well. Like it's okay to explore your body and to, to own it in that way. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I think it does get kind of written off slightly because of Gwyneth and because of Goop being what Goop is. Yeah. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. <laughs> um, so the book, your book came around that time. And do you feel that these are the things that sort of built you up to writing it? Is that why you started writing it at that point? Yeah, I think... The repeal the eighth movement was a really big thing for me. Um, growing up in Ireland where um, sex education is quite poor, uh, the Catholic Church were very prevalent and you could feel the church's influence in um, in schools and, and in the culture more generally. So I, I felt like I kind of, I grew up with that. And then when the repeal the eighth movement came, it was just this really brilliant but frightening and 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 kind of momentous but scary time because it was suddenly Ireland was talking about sex and women's bodies and power and looking at how women had been you know I suppose kept down by um by 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 the patriarchy I suppose controlling their mm. bodies and it was just a really interesting time and that definitely was something that I was very interested in writing about and then that felt I felt like that connected with the kind of more basic information and so that's I suppose that was kind of one of the major reasons why mm. I wrote the book. In the book you're quite um you talk about your own experiences quite a lot mm -hmm. which a I think is incredibly brave not well I think it is brave because we often don't talk to our nearest and dearest about mm. a lot of our experiences mm. let alone put them out in a book mm. so um but how how was your education growing up so you've said that it was quite your sex education yeah <laughs> you said that it was quite um influenced by the church do you remember what sex education was like at school yeah I mean I went to a catholic church or sorry school catholic school and it wasn't that and I went to church I went to catholic church um every Sunday but at the same time, I never felt the weight of it too much. Um, but I felt like it, sex education was pretty absent. It was it was kind of like a, a one day in primary school where there was lots of misinformation. Like I remember the teacher saying, um, or it was a nurse actually. So a nurse came in for one day to give us this sex education. And she said, she told us that it wasn't a good idea to use tampons because... It, it, I think it was something like infections could get stuck up there. It was better to let the blood come out. She said that was like healthier. Um, there was a few other kind of just basic misinformation yeah. in that day. And also it was just one day. It wasn't kind of, you know, a holistic approach that um, was was about relationships and about, you know, a kind of, I think that's really how you have to do sex education is to weave it into kind of, the life of a child and a teenager instead of it just being this one strange day um, in school. But I said, but, and yeah, there was definitely misinformation related to, I suppose, the church. And I think there was just a general scaremongering, like, and lots of the people I spoke to for the book and, and for pieces that I've done after the book have just spoken about that scaremongering and how as a girl you're taught, you know, that sex can lead to pregnancy and STDs and you're just told to be terrified of mm. that and you're never taught about sex in a positive way mm. and you're sort of taught that it's 
it's for boys and for men and so essentially yeah. your job is to kind of um like be a receptacle yeah be a receptacle <laughs> at the right time and kind of ward it all off before that but also hold the responsibility of not yeah getting exactly and not getting yeah. STD. It's yeah kind of very much on the on the girl's shoulders yeah to... absolutely absolutely um but what was interesting was when I began to research the book I realized that you know I had really naively thought that it must have been much better here in the UK yeah. or in the US or in Europe but actually there are very very few cultures and countries getting sex education right like it's been quite poor in the UK I think you know yeah. really poor there's been sp uh, things that have been specific to the UK like section 28 uh, so the f f which forbade teachers talking about homosexuality oh wow and yeah. that was kind of that was in place till the early 2000s yeah. Yeah. so I mean almost everywhere has been really bad at sex education you yeah. know the Dutch have been good at it but that's about it yeah I was gonna say they've got I think and I think it's mirrored in the um abortion rates isn't it or um sexual assault rates are much lower yeah and than I, they are in our country and there's a study um that I quote in the book about Dutch young women and talking about their first sexual experience yeah. and more women in the Netherlands say that it was a positive experience yeah. than women in the US and I think that's you know that's probably just a direct result of education definitely yeah yeah it's quite sad really <laughs> well, yeah it's sad and, and it feels quite dangerous because yeah we're giving girls or boys a whole rounded um, education on it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so since you since you wrote the book and it it was fairly autobiographical, auto, <laughs> you can tell like it's seven thirty and I <laughs> autobiographical. Um, the conversations or the topics that you brought up in it, and you spoke about masturbation, about discharge, about your first time having sex, like all of these are quite. Um, not taboo, but I guess they're not things that we often talk about mm -hmm. very much with mm -hmm. our nearest and dearest mm -hmm. or family. Have you found that, was it easy to write about that? Did you have these discussions with people beforehand? Have you always been very comfortable talking about these things or? Um, no, I mean, I don't really talk about these things very much. Like You are now. You yeah. You have to now. Yeah. Um, I guess like, but I've always, I guess as a journalist and writer, I write about things more easily um, and I've I've always found it quite easy to write about personal experiences. So I write about personal experiences much more than I talk about them probably. I mean, no, like I'm just thinking of my husband, he would he would start <laughs> laughing because I do, I do talk about myself quite a lot, but I don't talk about, I don't know, I wouldn't talk to my family that much about some of these experiences, let's say, or, or even my friends, but I definitely, I kind of can work stuff out through writing and I don't find it too difficult to write about my personal experiences and I don't m really mind about them being out there in the world. Yeah. I, it doesn't particularly bother me. And so I feel like that's quite a privileged position to be in. And so then I feel like I can help to... Um, allow other people to think about their own experiences by presenting my experience and 
it was again to come back to the repeal the eighth campaign there was mm. really interesting research done when it was passed and it was a landslide and it was like unexpected that legal abortion would be passed by a public referendum with that amount of votes in favor do you remember what the vote was it was it was like 68% or something it was yeah in the high 60s yeah. and one poll said that um it was a poll of people who'd voted and it women's stories and women telling their stories was cited as the major reason for the way they cast their vote that was the most important thing to them in deciding whether to vote yes or no and i just think that's really telling and i don't think that women should have to tell their personal stories they shouldn't certainly shouldn't have to tell their personal stories in order to mm. win basic mm. human rights but at the same time i believe that stories are a really powerful way of making change and working for change and so i suppose if you're the kind of person which i am who doesn't really mind giving up mm. those stories or who doesn't have very much to lose by giving up those stories then you may as well do it yeah. you know i know that that's not always possible for some people like some people's workplaces or families um or cultures wouldn't be so um wouldn't really allow for that but for me i have the privilege to be able mm. to do that I think it gives other people the permission and power to do it as well. Yeah, and I think it allows you to think about your own stories when you read other people's stories. Like that's what I think, you know, books are for in a way is, you know, yeah. even fiction or non-fiction is to read other people's stories and biographies and that way you kind of learn empathy but can also think about yourself in a different way. Yeah. So um, for anyone that hasn't read your book, what is it about? <laughs> vaginas. So it is about vaginas and vulvas, of vulvas. course. Yeah, yes. I was thinking that yeah. because um, it came up on Goop and I put it like, on Instagram, like, you know, who, who knows what a vagina is? Mm. And it's shocking how many women don't yeah. actually know yeah. what a vagina is. Yeah. Is it a more comfortable term? Like, why do we... Yeah, I think so. I When I started writing the book, I still called a vulva a vagina. Yeah. And that's like, I had the name before I finished the book. And I kind of thought it was pretty harmless to say vagina rather than vulva. But then actually, you know, reading up on it and, 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 and doing more and more research, I realized that, no, it's not. That's just another reason um, or another way of minimizing it yeah. and just not not allowing our kind of fullness like you know because the vagina is just the birth canal yeah but like and also it's obviously essential for heterosexual penis vagina sex but you're leaving out like loads of good stuff yeah what you did know? betty dodson say on the yeah tube? like all the like, good all shit the, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and like she's exactly right yeah. you know <laughs> So I, I think now it is important to say vulva, vulva when you're talking about vulvas and vaginas when you're talking about yeah. vaginas. But yeah, so the book is about vaginas and vulvas and clitorises <laughs> and labia and yeah, all the good shit. Um, but so it starts with me talking about sex education, the sex education that I received in school and the sex education that's kind of currently available in the UK. Um then it also looks at the myths because I think there are 
a lot of myths because there's a lot of silence. So when there's kind of a lack of information, you'll find that misinformation mm. kind of takes its place. And I think that's been really true about vaginas and vulvas. Mm. And then I look at um, pregnancy, um, including abortion and miscarriage, because that's something else, you know, that we're really, you know, we don't talk about mm. very much, about, uh, even though both are really, really common. Yeah. Um, and then childbirth and the menopause, um, periods, you know, all the, everything that goes along with <laughs> being a woman or having a vagina. Yeah. 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 Um, let me go back. So we, um, you mentioned periods in your book and obviously peri like periods are being spoken about more and more now, mm -hmm, especially mm -hmm. with like Maisie Hill's book coming mm -hmm. out this year. Um, quite a few people are now doing like their cycle tracking stories, yeah. even on Instagram, like people yeah. are talking about their daily tracking, which is really cool. Um, I think with women's reproductive systems or health, there are, we're, we're taught not to talk about them, right? There are points that we we have a period we don't talk about it we just deal with it mm -hmm. we go through menopause we don't talk about it we just deal with mm -hmm. it and take whatever over the counter we can to mm -hmm. kind of minimize the mm -hmm. effects of it um how do you feel I mean I guess your book is part of it but how do we start to change the conversation around that so that people are more comfortable talking about it and and I guess to reframe them as not they're not necessarily burdens yeah they're empowering events yeah. that are taking us through life yeah yeah, I think that can be really interesting. I think there's just an openness that needs to happen like throughout the culture. So it's school, it's workplaces, mm. um, it's in GP surgeries so that, you know, because lots of GPs don't know enough about either periods or the menopause. It's, it's, it's everywhere. Um, we need to start, you know, being more open. Um, and that's why I suppose I feel like if you are the kind of person who doesn't mind being mm. open, then that's a useful way to be. Um, but I also think, you know, kind of anybody with any degree of power, and that's lots of people, you know, whether you work in an office and, and you could suggest that you make things better for women with periods and women experiencing menopausal symptoms mm. and if you work in you know a school you can do that too mm. you know I think that if we try to involve everybody men and women and yeah. non-binary people and try to just get everybody involved in shifting this culture because it's not it's not just it's not just any one group it, it needs to kind of uh, happen across the board yeah it, it feels like with many things that the um, that women or, or people with vaginas are responsible for making the change. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't feel like it's a, a collective yeah. Yeah. shift. Yeah, and it has to be. Yeah. You know, because it has to involve everybody because it has to involve workplace policies yeah. and architecture yeah. and... Um, scientific research and you know it can't just be done by half the people it needs to involve be done by the whole. everybody yeah yeah but I suppose you know we've been we're starting from a place where it hasn't even been done by half the people because the people who have had power in scientific research or architecture or the workplace have for so long been men so it's mm. been sort of 
you know, completely neglected. Whereas then, you know, I think obviously there has been major progress and women are more powerful, let's say, even in the medical profession. You know, it was completely dominated by men mm. as recently as the 1980s. Mm. And now it's 50-50 or I think slightly more women enter the profession than men. And so that will make a really big change. But I think, it, yeah, it can't just be done by women. No, it's interesting that you say that about the medical f- profession. It was like only 1990 that they found out the actual size of the clitoris, right? Yeah, it was, it was 1998 <laughs> that this urologist, so she found out, yeah, she found out the kind of how big it was. Yeah. yeah. They and So it's a weird one because, first of all, I didn't know when I started working on this book that the clitoris extended inside the body. And like, of course it makes sense that it does because where else would it go? What's this thing connected to? And also I think you can probably, you can feel that, you know, but at the same time, because I'd never seen a diagram, I just had no idea of what it looked like. But that information was available for basically centuries, but just, it wasn't, um, disseminated or nobody was told that that. but then she she discovered that it was probably bigger than people had thought and she she wrote about it a lot and 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 kind of got that information out there among the medical community but yeah that was in the late 90s I mean it's absolutely not yeah it's completely absurd yeah absolutely and I think it, it comes down to uh, well, not it doesn't come down to, but I think connected to that is the the fact that when you think about um, the diagrams that you yeah. are shown, yeah. um, they're usually you know that the the vagina go- going into the womb yeah. and then the fallopian tubes yeah. and the ovaries and and that's you know that's what you see that's what your body is, but you never see a vulva no. or a diagram of a clitoris because you know that's nothing to do with pregnancy it's to do with pleasure and you know yeah power why would women need pleasure when we can just reproduce yeah it's it's so um it's it blows my mind that that's only sort of started being talked about in the last 20 years yeah yeah it's crazy um I remember you saying in your book that you didn't even know what clitoris was when you started getting to and I think I mean I don't think I would have done either I don't really have much recollection of my sex education, which probably means that it, it was not up to much. <laughs> yeah. But um, that th- we're not, women aren't even taught that this is what clitoris is. This is, you know, we're that men don't have a, a part of their body or anatomy that is purely for pleasure. Right? Yeah. We do. And yeah. It's just. Yeah. No, I think it feels really taboo to say, you know, to a child or a teenager, yeah, that's your clitoris and it can be pleasurable to touch and that's just a fact but Mm. it feels completely taboo to say that and yeah I say in the book but I thought that the clitoris or the clit was like slang and it was like I didn't know what it was because it just I had never seen it you don't see it written down and you're not taught about it and it's not part of your sex education so it's kind of this private thing for you to figure out which obviously can be really great and you can figure that out quite easily but I think you're uh, sort of I think when you leave people to their own devices you know teenagers sometimes it works out really well for them but sometimes it doesn't and sometimes you're really doing them always you're doing them a disservice but sometimes that disservice has consequences Mm. 
Yeah, and you you mentioned also in your book about um, labias. Lab, how do I say it? Labiaplasty. Yeah. Yeah. And that the rates of that have gone up hugely yeah. in the past like five years. Yeah. Yeah. So it's still a really small amount of women, I would say, getting it, but it has increased dramatically. Yeah. And that's just because uh, I guess a lot of it comes down to porn yeah. and the fact that in mainstream porn, labias look a certain way. Yeah. And in the real world they don't look like that and because we don't really see vulvas you know that that's why that goop show where they show the vulvas feels like so radical i was just watching that in my living room thinking oh my god i can't believe they're showing this Mm. because you never really see a vulva like that and so you're seeing real vulvas and you never you never usually see that so then if you do see a vulva in porn you'll think well why doesn't my vulva look like that and that's what's happening with young and it was really women young. and girls. Well, yeah, there's girls as young as nine have uh, presented in UK GP surgeries seeking out labiaplasty. The BBC did a big investigation into it a few years ago. So, yeah, it, it's Poor. yeah, and it is. It's really distressing to think about that, and I think it definitely is linked to the fact that they haven't been taught about their own yeah. bodies and about how you know, how there's no one normal and if, if you know, if you have this area that's completely taboo but at the same time there's, like, porn available on yeah. your phone, then, you know, those two things can't exist without there being some sort of problem. You know, porn isn't necessarily bad but it shouldn't... First of all, you know, it needs to be... You know, it's not for children, so that's yeah. like a major problem. But also, you know, before people watch porn, there needs to be an education that allows them to realise that it's not real life. Yeah. It's not real sex. That and can't be their education. Yeah, that can't exactly. Yeah. Exactly. What do you know what age sex education starts in the UK? It depends. Um on I'm trying to think of my eldest if he's I don't think he's had any in what age is he? he's in year two. Okay. So right. I know it's relationship and sex education yeah. now. Yeah, so also, I don't think you'll be getting into, like, but anatomy. Yes. No, yeah. but what's worrying is that if girls as young as nine, yeah. that's only a couple of years older than my son, yeah. are already feeling that they aren't, that they're uh, not formed correctly or yeah. that there's something wrong, then that education needs to be starting, Yeah. in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, I talk to my son about everything, yeah. unfortunately, much to his. <laughs> but, you know, I think it's, it is that information is power and it's empowering yeah um and i think it can come down to parenting as well mm. you know and 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 since i started talking about all this and since the book came out lots of people have said you know but i just don't know what to call it with my girls you've got to call it the real thing yeah and well you can call it a vulva it's a vulva so call it a vulva but i think people feel you know there isn't a cute name like willie is an easier kind of like it's a bit of a you know it it, but there is no there's no name like that for the vulva so just call it the vulva Yeah, I remember when I was like 14, I went to a all-girl dancing school for, I think, maybe for like two weeks because I just couldn't handle it. And they called it a flower. Yeah. And I was just like, no, yeah. like I can't be in this environment. Yeah. But, 
I mean, do we even need a cutesy name? No, you know. Why do we need a yeah, cutesy name? Yeah, we'd be like, inventing one at this stage. You yeah. know, it's not going to happen. Just call it a vulgar. Cool. Yeah, yeah, and there are studies that show that children that can label their anatomy, they're at less risk of being abused. Yeah, yeah. Because they're, they're in their power. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then your your book, it, it kind of hits on every major milestone that a woman could go through from that reproductive cycle. And we go up to menopause. Yeah. Um, and you said in the book that you spoke to your mum about it. Yeah. And about her experience of it. Yeah. Was that your first kind of dive into menopause? Yeah, I was really ignorant about the menopause, I would say. And I think so many women are um, until the time comes. Mm. Um, because I think there's kind of a fear of it. And it's, you know, a, a time of women aging and it's nothing to do with um, reproduction, you know, it, 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 it's the opposite of that really. And so I think at least with pregnancy, women are kind of considered to be, you know, doing something really useful and, yeah. and producing a baby. And so there's like, uh, you know, well, I mean, they're still really discriminated if you think about it, women being, you know, fired from their workplaces and stuff. But I think menopause is, is, is even more taboo um and i spoke to my mother after she'd you know come through the menopause and was postmenopausal um and it was really interesting because she did say you know that that what you were talking about earlier on about it being empowering and it being there there were there were positives to take from it and she had lots of those and that was really nice and reassuring and you know because it's obviously quite uh a tough experience as well in yeah. lots of ways but you know she definitely had positives to say about it you know you don't get your period that's actually yeah. really good <laughs> yeah. Yeah. um so you know it was really interesting to speak to her but just realizing that it came way too late and to think that you know she was experiencing some quite severe symptoms in silence both in her workplace and her home yeah and you know we're a we're a house of um it's me and, t and i have two sisters so it's a house of women really but i think she didn't really speak openly about her menopause with us and i think you know a lot of the time when a woman is around that age like 40s 50s it's a time when you have teenagers who are or you know yeah. people in their young early 20s who are quite selfish you know you're still at work you might have aging parents mm. so it can be a really stressful time for women and a time when they aren't putting themselves first mm. but yeah absolutely I think there's silence around it that needs to be smashed yeah it's um it's interesting women are we're very visible as teenagers and mm -hmm. I'm thinking from sort of a marketing consumerist mm -hmm. film TV mm -hmm. teenage um 20s yeah 30s yeah. and then we and then do start, start to, tear to die off, off. yeah like die I yeah. mean not die off but you yeah, know tear totally. off and if you think about like TV presenters um you know it's it's usually you know, like Holly, Who, yeah, Holly and Phil, Holly you know, Phil, yeah. they're great. I love them. Everybody loves Holly and Phil, but he's 57 and she's 38. Yeah. So that's like, that's the sort of average age, yeah. uh, age gap that you see. So you kind of like, you know, the BBC has been brought to court over this, you know, yeah. uh, the women just start disappearing. Yeah. And 
in movies yeah. um you even know. magazines like yeah. it's, you know in fashion and yeah. and women you rarely see a woman over the age of what, 40 45 yeah representing anything yeah unless it's like uh, urinary incontinence pads yeah yeah which is yeah, yeah which is sad it, it's like not S- yeah, so th- i think yeah that's exactly it and i think that's a huge part of why the menopause is still taboo but there's again similarly to periods and vaginas and vulvas in general I think that that is beginning to change Mm. um I think you know Meg Matthews is she speaks about it a lot um I think people are beginning to talk about menopause more Mm. and I suppose you know from a cynical point of view brands are beginning to realize that you know that's actually when women have a lot of money and and it hasn't been tapped into very much. So, so I feel like there's kind of going to be more emphasis on it yeah. um, in the next few years. But I mean, it's really long overdue. Uh, yeah. uh, and again, just it needs to be like doctors, educators, workplaces. It needs to be across the board. Yeah, definitely. I saw a retreat for menopausal women the other day and I was like, well, that's pretty cool. At least it's it's starting to get to that. Yeah focus point I guess at that eye level yeah and I think realizing the specific needs of of people in that stage and the specific you know the benefits because you know there are really crappy symptoms and then there are great things that come from it too yeah as there are with periods or pregnancy or you know every every stage of life yeah yeah so do you have um if if anyone will want to go on to read more about anything we've spoken about do you have any little nuggets up your sleeve obviously your book yes yeah, so. a good place to start <laughs> yes uh i'm just thinking with your research you must have un, un um turned over some stones yeah i i put a reading list at um the the back of the book ah, cool. um i'm trying to think what's on that list i can uh, i can type up some links and put yeah, them underneath this yeah and um and a watching list. I think the Goop Lab, uh, yeah. episode three, maybe, I yeah, think yeah, is yeah. the one. I skipped straight uh, to that one. Yeah, me too. It's the <laughs> only one I've watched so far. I'll go back and watch some of the yeah. others. I think that's worth watching. Um, I think that OMG Yes, uh, which is a series of videos about orgasms okay. and techniques to get there, is worth looking at. But that does cost money, so it depends on kind of if you can afford it. Um all the books I mentioned earlier on. Um, yeah. uh, there's a new book coming about coming out about endometriosis. I forget what it's called though. I'll, yeah, maybe yeah. I'll send you we'll a send list. You some yeah. 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 Do you think you've got another book in you? Do you feel that the, obviously this is how I um, first heard of you through yeah. your book? Yeah. Do you think that you have more in you to go down the route of women's health? I'm not sure to be honest. Um, I haven't because I've been working full time. I haven't really thought about it. Yeah. Um, but I definitely think there's more to say. Yeah. Um, um yeah. I, I actually I haven't really thought about <laughs> it. Um, because there's other writing that I want to do. Like I really want to write fiction, and I've never done that. So I want yeah. to give that a go. Um, and then I think there are so many people doing brilliant stuff in women's health. But at the same time, I do know that I'm always going to be really interested yeah. in vaginas, vulvas, pregnancy, fertility. Yeah. Um, I suppose I'm really interested in that kind of 
the journey of, of being a woman, really. And so there's loads of stuff that I want to investigate and talk about, whether that's in fiction or nonfiction. Yeah. Yeah. You, your next book's got to be like Volvo, the home, homecoming or something. <laughs> yeah. You've got to get the Volvo in there. Somewhere. Yeah. Cool. Thank you so much for um, spending your evening with me. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was really nice to talk to you. Me too.